This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet, fresh back from Lake Winnipesaukee. Bill, are you refreshed and relaxed? Well, the drive home, you know, 600 miles from New Hampshire yesterday didn't, uh, you know, it kind of took, took some out of me, but I'm, I still got great fresh memories of water skiing up there on Lake Winnipesaukee, and uh, it was nice to see family and always nice to be out of the dreaded heat of the dc area in the summertime so now i'm back in it 600 miles from new hampshire sounds like a simon and garfunkel song <laughs> and i love the pictures of you water skiing you're you're badass on the old water ski <laughs> I'm, I'm sore the next day that i used to be 30 years ago but i but i can still ski yeah that's a young man's game isn't it <laughs> it is so what's happening we're at the uh, post july 4th um we're about to start Briefing the plebes, the class of 2025 is here, and uh, this should be the debut of our new conference center, not officially open till the end of September, but we're going to host the plebes from the class of 2025, one platoon, or I guess we'll have upwards of four platoons at a time in that conference center. Normally we do these briefs, well, last summer we didn't do them because of COVID, but years prior we would do them in our boardroom. And we can get a platoon at a time in there to introduce them to what the Naval Institute is and then sort of go big picture about the choice they've already made, get them motivated, you know, for this profession they're de facto part of. But we're looking forward to using the new facility for that purpose. And then we have some other big things coming up. Yeah, we've got uh, so you and I were making our plans to travel out to Reno for uh, Tailhook 2021. So it'd be fun to be out there again in person and do episodes of the podcast with naval aviators, young and young and old. Uh, we've got that happening. We've got the grand opening of the Jackson Taylor Conference Center at the end of September, 29, 30 September. Um, yep, there's always a lot going on at the Naval Institute. All right. Why don't we get right to our guest? In fact, we'll just let the listeners know that this interview was postponed a number of days a function of having the conference center under construction as we had, I think it was like a 45 minute fire alarm test go on when we were supposed to do this last week. So we thank Michael for being of good cheer and, and joining us again today. Yeah. Our guest today is uh, Michael Knudsen. He is a presidential management fellow at the department of Homeland security, a former U S army intelligence uh, specialist and his uh, prize-winning essay from the Emerging and Disruptive Technologies Essay Contest appears in the uh, June issue of Proceedings, starting on pages 34 and 35. It's titled, Synthetic Bioweapons Are Coming. So, uh, Mike Knudsen, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. This is a 
really been kind of a dream come true, both first podcast and first article ever published. So really appreciate the opportunity to, to come on and talk to your listeners. So first off, uh, kudos to uh, to MITRE for sponsoring this contest. They've been uh, our consistent uh, sponsor of the Emerging and Disruptive Technologies Contest for a couple of years now. Uh, like all of our contests, this was judged in the blind. I think we had about 80 or 90 essays this year, so we had a very good, very competitive field. And uh, a couple of articles were about uh, biotech and about, uh, you know, what, you know, essentially sort of building off of what we've been all experiencing the last year with COVID. Uh, yours was the best. It was the prize-winning essay. So uh, congratulations, Mike. And just tell us a little bit about the, so this essay goes deep into the technology of a thing called CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas9. So let's start there. What What is CRISPR? CRISPR, it's a long acronym for uh, Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeat dash CRISPR-associated enzyme 9, uh, because biologists love to have long, long, complicated names. Really, it's a genome editing tool. Um, exciting uh, because it's just the fastest, easiest, uh, cheapest, most streamlined process that we've ever developed. Not the first. Uh, it kind of builds from previous genome editing tools like polymerase chain reaction and uh, transcription activator-like effector nuclease called TALON. You can see why we uh, use acronyms instead. But uh, really what it is, is it's a two-part um, you know, molecule that uh, many people refer to as molecular scissors. It has two pieces. It has a guide RNA, uh, which is a kind of nucleic acid, very similar to DNA, that helps uh, guide the enzyme to a specific part of a genome. From there, it, uh, it kind of latches on to a specific, uh, very precise location and allows the enzyme itself to do the snipping and cutting and editing, which really allows you to add, remove, edit, uh, delete. You know, it's really kind of a control-alt-delete tool for genomes, uh, and most interestingly, can be done in living, complicated organisms, you know, certainly with more precision, like with bacteria, but... Uh, uh, also potentially with consenting adult humans, uh, which has opened up a lot of interest, both biomedically, for research, what good this can do in the world, but also with the subject of my paper, really the uh, concerning dual-use implications of how this may proliferate into synthetic bioweapons that I, de that I detail uh, throughout the essay. So CRISPR's been in the news a lot the last couple of years. As you mentioned, it's, it is a gene editing tool that makes that process much easier, quicker, faster, cheaper, et cetera. So give us, give our listeners uh, an example of a way that it's being used for the good of mankind, and then talk a little bit about, it, as you point out in your paper, ways that it could be used for ne nefarious uses. Because one of the things that's so important to highlight is how quickly this tool is advancing. Um, it was discovered, you know, back in 93, uh, floating in some tide pools off of the, the coasts of Spain, but uh, really wasn't explored until many years later. Uh, but then when uh, doctors Charpentier and Doudna kind of created the finalized uh, CRISPR tool that is both both the guide RNA and the enzyme stitched together in a wieldy way, uh, a development that they got the Nobel Prize for, uh, that was back in 2012. It was first used in 2013 on human DNA for the first time, uh, but then it developed so quickly, and a lot of the you know the errors were fixed. That uh, most recently in June 2020, uh, we cured humans uh, for the first time of um, 
genetic disorders. Really, there was three folks who had blood-based genetic disorders, including sickle cell anemia, uh, that was cured through a, through a form of genetic surgery. Uh, really, what this allows us is to figure out where these these errors are that can potentially cause these life-limiting illnesses or these uh, these disabilities in these ways, and really go in and, and fix it manually, a way that we've never been able to do at speed or never been able to do to a consenting adult, like I said before. Uh, it's really a, a, a marvelous advancement um, in that way for, for potentially the, the betterment of others. But the trick is because at, the, at its heart, what it allows a scientist to do or a practitioner, uh, which I detail in my article, even high school students uh, creating truly novel capabilities. And when we talk about what this could mean for the future of biowarfare is we're now having to put back on the table capabilities that we had never considered before. Before, bioweapons have always been this imprecise, it's either going to infect as many people as possible, uh, these enormously mass casualty weapons, as in the case of the Soviet biopreparat, um, you know, super-engineered anthrax, uh, these kind of enormous kill as many people as you can possibly find, and indiscriminate in a way that makes them militarily not very useful and outperformed by other precision weapons like, um, you know, even conventional weapons. But what we're now looking at for the first time is how these new capabilities, you could potentially create a bioweapon, a synthetic agent that is that is far more precise to the point of, you know, as technology advances, increasingly precise, potentially even down to the specific individual targeting a specific genome with, a, you know, within a certain matter of error no other individuals, you have the ability to then target individuals or groups by non-ballistic means in a, in a way that I refer to as human domain fires, which really weaponizes the social vector, potentially defeating traditional defenses. We've been used to defending ourselves against guns and bombs and, and artillery for so long um, that we haven't necessarily considered how, for instance, revealed by COVID and the Teddy Roosevelt, a, an aircraft carrier, for instance, may be vulnerable to this human domain targeting, whereas they're well protected from ballistics, missile, cyber, and other risks. Uh, and finally, because of these novel capabilities, you can really dial in a boutique effect. Certainly death, debilitation, incapacitation, but also potentially these really novel outcomes like disorientation or potentially genetic leverage. If you could infect someone in a way that is degenerative or um, not necessarily traditionally debilitating, you have strategic leverage over them and kind of a, in a strategic collection sense, you have someone who may be increasingly erratic, um, hostile, violent, which may be desirable for an adversary to affect our leadership uh, in, those, in those kind of designer ways that aren't necessarily limited to just killing someone or hospitalizing them. When you talk about boutique, which is a word I love, boutique effects, we're we talking about delivering the weapon via food sources or through the atmospherics or any any way you want. How, how do we think that this this bioweapon would be would be administered, let's say? Really, that's the scary thing about how CRISPR and just next generation genetic modification could go. Because certainly we we're, we're bombarded with COVID about this hyper um, hyper transmissible airborne virus, um, 
And certainly that's a that's a potential medium where instead it's, you know, this airborne mechanism that affects certain people or has specific effects. But because you can really design unique characteristics, whatever is going to be most tactically or strategically valuable for an adversary, you have the ability to then create this an entire bio arsenal of these weapons to be implemented at the right time and location down to the point where when we refer to precision, maybe you have one weapon that you fire because it limits offsite impact. It self-deletes after a certain number of generations, or it's waterborne and does and fails to transmit in water of a certain salinity and making sure that you're able to target only fresh, fresh water source or allows you to then manipulate the biology of your agent to then be more precise, to be more targeted, and therefore more useful to a military actor. Um, it's really that, that, that customization which keeps me up for a little bit of context for your readers to kind of highlight what we're talking about, whereas the biopreparats, the weaponization, bio, you know, the largest, um, most robust bioweapons program in known history has been it was really taking anthrax and other agents and making them as as lethal as they could naturally be or weaponizing them in using all our military technologies. But you're still limited by the natural biology of the, the anthrax itself. Whereas now we have uh, a 2019 winner of the internationally genetically uh, genetic engineered machine contest, uh, a team of high school students who engineered E. coli bacteria to spin spider silk to kind of give you an idea of the true diversity of the kinds of characteristics you could potentially stitch onto an agent. Wow. Yeah. So my high school biology team was dissecting frogs and, uh, you know, in 2019, <laughs> a, a team of high school biology students is teaching E. coli how to spin spider silk. That just blows me away. Uh, Mike, in your article, you talk a little bit about binary weapons and about paired infections that are separated to evade detection. How does that work? Certainly. Um, Going back to how the if you have a truly indiscriminate weapon that affects as many people as possible, that's in my mind, um, you know, just not that militarily useful because at the end of the day you want to kill or affect those you want to in the times that you want to. And if in this case you had an agent again using those designer characteristics, uh, if the inevitable, if the the immediate goal was to target a a carrier battle group or a carrier strike group. Sorry. Have the, a, what you could do is potentially have a, a asymptomatic infection that transmits around, you know, it's got a slight cough. It's concealed within the, the normal disease pattern of a, of, of San Diego, for instance, it transmits around, uh, and then it hitches a ride because it's, you know, not particularly noticed, um, as a, as an aircraft carrier departs home, home port and then cruises on down to Guam or Vietnam or wherever it may be visiting. There's another infection that's released at that location. Again, similarly asymptomatic, but when the individuals that visit both locations get both diseases, potentially there's the ability to synthesize these agents where they react together in such a way that really catalyzes a much more dangerous impact or whatever the desired the desired effect may be. This is one example of how you can have these novel characteristics and limit those who you're targeting. Whereas before you may just have to, you know, release an agent, which would be affecting as many civilians as of 
military personnel in San Diego in this case, raising a lot of concerns, a lot of alarms. And by the time that the desired end game hits, the desired outcome uh, affects the, the, the carrier group or, or whatever the target may be, it's too late. And we're scrambling to identify what the issue is. And if the issue is it, that carrier strike group is not able to respond to a theoretical invasion of Taiwan, some sort of grab on the Spratly Islands or some other military action, then uh, we're seriously limited in our options. In your article, you mentioned um, that China's been thinking about this. There's a lot of uh, thought going on within the People's Liberation Army uh, at senior senior levels, including going back more than 20 years. And so you, you mentioned this uh, Warfare Beyond Rules, um, which is a Chinese PLA publication written in 1999. It um, talks about asymmetric conflict and, and talks about, you know, essentially denounces the idea that there should be limits on the idea of, uh, of warfare. Talk about that a little bit. Warfare Beyond Rules, kind of in my view, and, and in the view of, of some other thinkers that I've read, really have laid out a, lo- a lot of the, the, the doctrinal and philosophical basis for some things that we're, uh, we're seeing in, in PLA defense thinking now. Really, it's a treatise uh, written by two then senior PLA colonels, uh, about kind of observing the Amer- recent American successes and, and how we sh- they should and should not prepare to to compete against the United States, realizing that that was the direction that the world was going, uh, and really they they rejected the conventional warfare schemes. Um, the the idea, and along with that norms that have been built around warfare that uh, these PLA thinkers uh, felt that China did not have. Uh, much of a say in, you know, these are Western-led norms that um, China had no input in and therefore shouldn't necessarily apply. Really, it was a broad concept about how you need to embrace uh, really talking about what we now call gray zone competition, the idea that lawfare and uh, simultaneous, you know, uh, competition short of, of conflict while making making economic and info warfare gains and, and others, uh, this has really been the focus of Warfare Beyond Rules, uh, talked about by thinkers like David Kilcullen and and, and some some uh, futurists and prognosticators about where the world is going and conflict with China may, may look. But one additional element was that rejection of norms that I mentioned, and uh, specifically mentioned you know biochemical warfare, uh, these, quote, new concept weapons, these idea that what we view as as bioweapons and chemical weapons, and we've developed these norms around them, these specific thinkers uh, kind of view them as just weapons like any other, just whose, whose potential impact has been magnified many times. Uh, and because and the norms built around them may be potentially desirable. This was Warfare Beyond Rules as a kind of philosophical concept. It was well regarded. And uh, one of the thinkers was promoted to major general. Uh, according to my research, they're both still active in the the, the lecture circuit and are forming uh, the next generation of, of thinkers and, and really kind of provi- provided the foundation for other thinkers. Um, there's, there's senior colonels, uh, Colonel Guo Ji Wei, who talks about ultra-precise and non-lethal Use of military bi- biotechnology for that, again, uh, precise boutique effects. Uh, there's other thinkers like General Shang Shipo, uh, the PLA National Defense University president. Uh, Hei Fu Chu, the, the, the president of the 
Chinese Military Science Academy, uh, the Academy of Military Science, which leads the PLA's uh, military uh, scientific enterprise, uh, as a really discussion around the biotech domain of warfighting. Um, some thinkers use the term ethnic attacks, meaning ethnic targeting attacks, and other leveraging the capabilities of synthetic biology and these new novel capabilities uh, enabled by developments like CRISPR and the developments that are surely to come down the way. So what kinds of things can we do about this threat? Really, I think response and, and preparation is there's, – there's kind of four, in my, in my view – four major fields that we need to kind of wrap our heads around to be preparing for now. Uh, it's important to say that as I, as I talk through this, this subject, this is not the world. These threats aren't today, but they're, I, I feel in the nearer future than we, than we imagine. Um, certainly we, we want to hope that there's 10 or 20 years. Uh, but I think it's telling when no, no, um, scientists I've talked to are willing to commit to a timeline. Uh, and given the speed of this technological development, I feel that the, the time is, is shorter than we fear. But when it comes to what we need to do, I see four major elements, like I said. Uh, first, we need to improve our ability to detect and characterize these kind of threats. Uh, currently, we have a biosurveillance structure that's based around symptomatic presentation, you know, uh, but that's always kind of messy in early days. We have uh, DHS's BioWatch program, which is based around known specific agents. Um, and really, we, we're, we're, we're pretty decent at keeping an eye out for things we know about and sicknesses and health security threats that we're aware of. Whereas what we're talking about with CRISPR and new next generation biotechnology are threats that may present very differently or may be intentionally designed to be evasive or those binary agents or those asymptomatic transmission that only, you know, that catalyze and shift in certain ways at the presentation of a specific genome, a specific leader, a president, an admiral, a SEAL team leader, a MARSOC captain, whoever it may be. We need to improve our ability to detect what those threat that that threat exists and then characterize it biomedically uh, in labs. Um, to be able to then generate responses. The second piece is to then attribute that use. We have, uh, I think in the news today, a lot of discussion and the, the, the COVID origin conspiracy, uh, you know, controversy is the big telling story about how difficult it is and how much, how much debate and how, how tricky it is to then uh, attribute a leak or, or an origin or a use of a natural or uh, organism that given political realities, given intel collection realities, that it's very difficult to get solid information about that and then be able to communicate that to American people or an international community with enough conviction to then generate broad political will and support to act on it. I think that both the detection and characterization requirement and the attribution requirement are likely to involve a lot of different interagency partners, uh, certainly the public health structure, uh, the intelligence community, the defense communities, state, uh, even DHS and other agents really need to be at the table to then figure out solutions to figuring out what's going on, characterizing that threat, and then pointing the finger in a decisive and confident way. Once we've done that, the third requirement that we need to then to build out is our ability to defend against that threat. 
I see defense made up of, of two major elements. There's first, of course, the ability to develop medical countermeasures at speed. Uh, I think the fact that we've proven what mRNA vaccine, uh, vaccines are able to do for COVID, uh, the amount of, of research and support that we're, and, and, and as well as just the, the prioritization of realizing that these threats really matter uh, and can be debilitating for our, our, our nation and for our military personnel, the, the ability to then develop those countermeasures is critical. Uh, and particularly the countermeasures for what next generation threats may look like. Related to that is personal protective equipment, which may need to be improved, made new, design, new designs may need to be made to then respond to what these threats may be in the future. Uh, and there's the whole, you know, getting the, the, getting the equipment and, and drugs necessary to protect our people. But then there's also the whole social doctrinal side of things. I think that when we look at how there's a significant overlap about when you when you talk about a biofire, a next generation human domain weapon, that suddenly social distancing and mask wearing and hand washing and hygiene looks a lot more like a reactive fires drill rather than a public health response. And in framing that and doing a study of, of COVID response and how in various ways, whether it's a foodborne or waterborne or, or airborne, how we may need to create doctrine around how soldiers and airmen and sailors and Marines react to these kind of threats and when and, and how to do so. And then finally, uh, to then to complement our ability to defend against these threats, we need to develop responses and then signal those responses. I view one of the largest advancements of synthetic biology is the ability to pr be precise in your use and that what a precision weapon looks like. Traditionally, the United States is associated, you know, the nuclear deterrent to any sort of WMD use, including bio and chem. And certainly there are, you know, levels of chemical and biological weapons use, which would be deterred, you know, the, the mass anthrax on DC, you know, certainly someone would be getting nuked about that. But I think what's been proven in Syria with the Novichok poisonings, with these the, the proliferation of using what we determine to be WMD or Seaburn weapons to kill individuals, to kill small numbers of you know, relatively small numbers of people, we've proven that we're not that the nuclear deterrent isn't a satisfying or um, reliable deterrent against these kind of use. So we need to figure out what it would be. If someone used a bioweapon on a, on a carrier strike group, what does a proportional response look like? What domain is that response in? How do we signal our willingness to, to use that response? How do we track practice and train uh, that in our principal level exercises, in our wargaming? How do we get our allies in NATO, in uh, the Asia Pacific, um, and in other military forms to, to agree and have a, have a, uh, response that's in lockstep we need to then signal these our responses and what we would do whether someone uses a weapon to debilitate a leader or if someone has hacked the genome of uh, of a seal team or a marsoc team and then uses a weapon like this in a sort of gray zone clandestine covert environment what is our response going to be uh, because we need to think that through now because i think that these weapons are coming a lot sooner than we fear yeah, and we think a conventional war 
ROE matrix is complicated. What what you just introduced is is like playing four dimensional chess here. The the thing that comes to my mind, you were hinting about the origins of COVID. We have trouble coming up with a sort of consensus about what the origin of that pandemic was. So when we're talking about countering synthetic bioweapons, we would hope that DOD would be able to have a consensus about the origin better than the nation writ large, for starters. And then as you're talking about an ROE matrix, my first impulse is hopefully our intel would know the source of this synthesized bioweapon. And so step one would be take out that factory, right, which is something we can do. Um, And then beyond that, you start to get into sort of a slippery slope because of the nature of of bioweapons. And and when we're talking about genome and you just mentioned the ability to attack a specific SEAL team, for instance, does this – is the word pathogen, does this pathogen and using genome science, do you have the ability to just target the warfighter and not his family when he goes home and that sort of thing? Because at that point, if you jump that Rubicon, now you have it. Now this thing intended for military effects is now in society writ large and we're back to having a pandemic, right? Or is the science so sophisticated that that wouldn't happen? And I think that, in, in my view, that that's one of the enormous collateral risks here, because the science is rapidly developing. Um, what I what I can say that uh, in the seven years from you know Dr. Zhang's first uh, using of CRISPR to to edit uh, you know, to to edit human genes for the first time back in 2013 to uh, in back in last year when we cured sickle cell for the first time using this, the amount of offsite edits, the precision of the tool has dramatically and exponentially increased over the last seven years. It'll only continue to, and I'm sure that CRISPR is not the last or the best genome editing tool that we'll ever develop. It's a it's a sign of our ra- our rapidly developing biotechnical prowess. So I think that there's going to hit this point, and and maybe it's worth popping the hood a little bit about what I mean when it comes to targeting a specific warfighter or specific, a specific uh, special operations element. With the proliferation of precision medicine, how for medical reasons and nutrition and, and, and training, it's only going to benefit us to to synthesize a, a warfighter's DNA to then provide better medical care and, and for other things and probably store that in a defense health agency server that uh, is, is likely doesn't have the cyber, you know, the cyber security of, of our, of our really sensitive systems. The idea that when you act when you get your hands on someone's DNA down to the, spe- the specific individual, there's a version of this future where you could potentially affect just that person within a certain margin of error. So whenever you fire one of these weapons, just like any other conventional weapon, there's a chance of it of it going off going off base. And I think when you talk about a living weapon like this, the the risk is so much higher when you have you factor in mutation. You talk about the the variants that are popping up with COVID. You talk about mutagenic properties and potentially as the technology advances, there's controls you can implement where it dies out at a, after a certain number of generations, whether you, um, you know, it doesn't transmit in, in a non-target environment. 
But just like the guidance system of any precision weapon can go wrong, it's an enormous risk, I feel, when you have an adversary who feel who, who makes the judgment call that my ability to eliminate the American president or my ability to destroy this, you know, this specific special operations community because I've long since hacked their their defense health agency uh, server or because this admiral happened to do 23 in me that I've now since bought all the the genetic records of, which is the case. Uh, China owns all the 23 and me genomes. Um, the some military commander says that's worth the risk. And when a weapon designed to kill one person or a small number of people or a specific area of people then mutates, we then we're talking about a truly weaponized agent that may present a catastrophic existential risk, not just to the region or to the military or to the nation, but potentially, I mean, we're talking about the species. There's wow. thinkers that think <laughs> that way. Uh, Dr. Toby Ord comes to mind, uh, who puts a specific mathematical number on uh, the, the the chances of an engineered pandemic uh, killing us in the next hundred years. <laughs> there are certainly risks when a military thinker or, a, you know, a, a, a political leader says, hey, that's safe enough to use on that military target. But when we're talking about a, a bioweapon, a self-propagating living organism or pseudo-living organism in the case of viruses, um, that's one of my fears. Well, that'll keep you up at night. <laughs> I don't sleep much. We've been talking to Michael Knudsen. He's the winner of the Naval Institute's 2021 Emerging and Disruptive Technologies Essay Contest, sponsored by MITRE. His article is called Synthetic Bioweapons Are Coming. It appears in the June issue of Proceedings and on our website. And uh, Mike, it's just been great talking to you, although it's been also, uh, you know, really scary at the same time. <laughs> you can come to our party, Mike, but you can't talk about work. Yeah, I get it. I get it. <laughs> All right, well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. <laughs>